welcome to the stories of market research, the Incitrix podcast. I'm Sharday Torgerson, the creative and digital strategist at Incitrix in Saskatoon, Canada, and your host. So today we have a very special guest who is not just an expert in the research and insights industry, but is a spirited entrepreneur, an intuitive strategist a qualitative UX researcher who loves to translate her passion into understanding people into strategic insight, which are my favorite folks. Um, Originally from New England, Nikki started her career in Boston before relocating to France in 2011, ooh la la, while she (laughs) launched Mind Spark Research, a boutique UX firm acquired by Savanta in 2022. So she is also a two-time winner of the Insights 2050 Global Innovator Leadership Award and has been presenting on important industry topics for more than 15 years, such as the one we're about to dive in today. So welcome, Nikki. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. (laughs) I know I got those long-winded intros. I like to get a little bit excited, but, uh, you know, we've been back and forth uh, quite a bit on our schedule. Uh, You know, the time difference being a little bit of a, a fun loophole to jump through. And I know it's late where you are right now and the kids are probably snoozing away. So thanks for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. And I'm happy that I still have the energy after the long day. It's finally been sunny in Paris. So I'm like walking a lot now. So I'm really happy to be talking about something that gets the juices flowing. (laughs) I won't even tell you the temperature in Saskatchewan, Canada right now. Uh, We are supposed to be having some spring weather, but we are definitely still experiencing minus 20 temperatures. So let's just say that as long as the sun's shining, I'm trying to picture a place where I'm not at currently. So <laughs> Frats, I what can are imagine. spring-like temperatures? <laughs> like minus, <laughs> only minus 10. I wish it was minus 10 right now. I think I'd be in a much better mood. But uh, like I said, as long as the sun is kind of shining today, I think I'm pretty happy. Uh, what is France like this time of year? I'm assuming it's pretty nice. It's okay, but um, having grown up in New England has prepared me for this season. Um, So normally in the mornings, it's around zero degrees. And then between, it's been around zero and one when I walk my kids to school. And then in the afternoon, it's like 15. So I have all my winter coats out and I'm like, oh, got to go pick up the kids from school. And then I'm sweating by the time I even get there because the temperature change is so drastic in the day. So still adjusting, still need to figure my wardrobe out, not working right now. Uh, dressing in layers. I know that's the Canadian way. So you're preaching to the choir. Um, <laughs> you know, before maybe we dive in, I did give you a bit of an intro there, Nikki, but I wouldn't mind hearing, you know, a little bit more about yourself in your own words. Uh, you know, and maybe before before we get into the meat and potatoes of things, you know, what what is your most cliche uh, expat from America living in Perry storyline? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Well, (laughs) my most cliche storyline, I used to say in my former life, which is now pivoted, um, I used to say I came for the job, I stayed for a man, I left the job, I left the man. (laughs) So now that Emily in Paris has come around and made all American expats in Paris famous, um, I have to say that despite the fact that the show's depiction of life in Paris is glaringly inaccurate. The actual sort of events of like, you arrive at a firm, you're like, hi, I'm the American, 
you're dressing what you think is nice and everyone thinks weird. all that stuff that stuff happened to me yeah i would say <laughs> that emily in paris season one pretty accurate is your main character arc storyline <laughs> that's awesome now from my understanding you know market research really brought you to paris uh you know and your passion for market research but where ultimately did that passion start well it's funny you should say that because i was listening to your fantastic and very warm intro of me so thank you very much for that and i was thinking <laughs> Um, oh, sugar, some people are going to be really mad if they hear this because I actually got my start in New Hampshire, not Boston. So I'm in the habit of saying Boston because living over here, if I say New Hampshire, they're, they're like, where is that in proximity to New York? So I always have to say Boston. So I was I was listening and going, oh, man, all of my former colleagues from the New Hampshire area are going to go, uh, 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 you weren't the big city girl, you were in New Hampshire. So that's that's where my passion started. I have always been at smaller agencies before joining Savanta. Um, and yeah, I mean, for me, it was one of those things, like most of us, fell into the research industry. That being said, I actually studied communications with an advertising concentration at university and took courses on things like consumer behavior and how to do surveys and how to conduct qualitative interviews. Um, I just wasn't planning to go into this field. I just happened to end up there. But yeah, at the beginning of my career, I was kind of both qual and quant and actually really, really loved the quantitative side of things. I just loved how mm -hmm. things clicked and, you know, you could sort of investigate the data, you know, all of the true crime fans listening to this, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and so just would go and explore and find some really interesting things and loved it. And then the 2008 recession hit dating myself. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of our clients said, we still need qual, but we want to add a budget. So the agency I worked for at the time said, let's throw some junior researchers at them and get them training at the same time. And the result of that was, um, it was sort of decided for me. The result was my, my managers at the time said, and you're a quali now. <laughs> and so I kind of got put on that path. Um, and no looking back, it's been really great. You know, we hear this quite often in the market research industry. A, you know, I I am in market research. I never planned on being here, but I'll never leave. Uh, and often, too, it's because they just found a love within the, the work itself and, and then built a, a career around it. Um, the fact that you mentioned, too, that our managers have influence in those areas where, uh, you know, even in our own agency, we often are building up people uh, in the qual uh, environment where, you know, it's, it's a long time to try to get people to be really great moderators to give them lots of practice in those areas. So um, starting them early is really important, getting them excited um, and, and helping them build a career around qualitative research is important. So sounds like you had some great managers and maybe some tough ones. Definitely. Too, so. <laughs> no, I definitely had good ones. My my managers in the early part of my career were, are still some, some of the people I consider mentors to this day, and they taught me a lot. So I was very lucky. Oh, I love that. I, I feel the same, uh, maybe from a university perspective. Uh, but yeah, I still connect with them quite a bit for that reason. Um, that's really cool. And I, I think for the folks as well who maybe don't know uh, about Savannah, the company, maybe you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit more about you guys. Yeah. Um, well, Savannah, I'm very biased, so I'm allowed to say this. <clears throat> I yes. think Savannah's is one of the more innovative and forward-thinking um, agencies that are around. Of course, I think that because I decided to so sell my company to them and not someone else, and that was a deliberate choice. 
Um, but what I really like about Savanta is, you know, they do a lot of the, you know, broad range of services um, for the mar market research and consulting industry, but the people are fantastic and they're really, really kind of always, always open to having discussions about what's next. How can we do things better? How can we do things differently? Um, and that really comes through in the way that Savanta has evolved. So they have mm -hmm. acquired quite a number of businesses. They tend to acquire quite unique ones that fill in some gaps from the overall product landscape um, that we might be uh, offering as a service provider. So yeah, at the moment we do a little bit of everything. So everything from, you know, surveys all the way through to UX research now. Um, and yeah, looking forward to see what other new things we're gonna be offering soon. Awesome. What do you, what do, you do at, at Savant? I understand you work in, in innovation. Um, what, what would be a day-to-day -day for Nikki? Whew. Well, that's hard because the day-to-day -day is different every single day. Um, so yeah, I'm currently EVP of innovation and strategy. Um, and so I'm doing quite a number of things. Um, the biggest piece of work I'm looking at right now is actually very related to what I was just touching upon, which is I'm evaluating what is um, the Savanta product landscape and figuring out how that corresponds with what the various different needs are coming from clients. How are clients' needs shifting? And how is Savanta shifting its proposition in relation to that? What are the things we haven't quite done yet that we need to be thinking about? Um, and that sort of way of thinking has impacts on all kinds of things. So it will influence our M&A strategy. It will influence, um, you know, the kinds of products that we want to bolster and build further. Do we want to hire and flesh out those teams more? Also might have impact on things like delivery capabilities. So do we want to start changing reporting styles or things like that? So it's really fun because um, I don't know you know, how it's been for you, for your experience, but having been a researcher for so long, you get to a certain point where I still love research and I can still, you know, design, you know, methodology or an approach for a given set of objectives. But I was also ready to do something else, but wanted it to still be tied to research. So I feel really happy and lucky, actually, that I kind of have this unique experience where I'm looking at research methodologies and propositions from a sort of holistic perspective and still engaging with clients around what they need but i'm also mm -hmm. not the one doing you know 16 hours worth of idis i feel too that a lot of us are really in the same kind of environment where we're really we're looking at a lot of the product environments that we we've established as services even ourselves like uh, everything you're saying i'm like mm-hmm Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it, it, it's quite interesting that uh, the market research industry is really moving towards uh, just being more uh, client centric and more uh, providing services in a manner that's uh, really specific to the needs. Uh, so it's really mm -hmm. cool to hear your perspective on, on uh, just Savannah innovating in that regard. So. Um, I can see right away you're pretty passionate and working in the areas of market research and the fact that you get to still support clients is a big deal for us who work in this industry. Um, I understand too, you've worked in areas of UX, um, which mm -hmm. will largely be a majority of the conversation that we dive in today. Um, what, what did draw you to the qualitative aspect of doing market research, maybe even, uh, you know, working more exclusively in the area of UX specifically? Yeah, so <clears throat> I'll tackle kind of both, both elements of that question. Sure. On the qualitative side, um, kind of broadly speaking, this is... This answer is not meant to be a disservice to qualitative or to qualitative researchers. In fact, the opposite. I 
always had the feeling that someone was going to come and take my job. And this was before we were talking about chat GPT and open AI and coming around and mm-hmm. saying, oh, we're going to usurp you with um, bots leading interviews. But I, I had the feeling all the time that, you know, I would be leading a focus group and clients would be watching in the back room and then I'd be writing a report and I was thinking the whole time, man, anyone could do this. Why, why, why did they hire me to do this? Why are they having me in the room? Gosh, anyone could do this. And then I realized, in fact, no, <laughs> not anyone can do qualitative research. And I did have a lot of really great training um, and I did observe hours and hours and hours and hours of moderating before I led my first interview. But there was something for me that felt so natural about it, this idea of connecting with human beings and building rapport, you know, kind of unlocking what's that first thing I need to say or do that opens the gate to this one person or to this group. And then once that happens, then it's like the magic happens and everything kind of rolls forward from there. And I just thought, yeah, everybody can do this. A monkey could do this. And then (laughs) and then I realized, in fact, (laughs) it's not true. And I've actually you know, seeing people moderate and go, oh, or or a client might say, we don't have the budget to hire a moderator, you know, we'll moderate this, but can you just come and, you know, observe and give guidelines and help with analysis? And then I go, mm, that's why clients hire external moderators, because it's actually, Absolutely. it's, it's, it's a skill and you have to work hard to get it. So, um, so I would say that the human connection element was big for me. And then as for why, you know, when MindSpark still existed, why we decided to pivot and work a lot more in the UX side of things. On the one hand, that also happened kind of naturally. So we were working, doing sort of qualitative market research with some bigger tech firms. And then what would happen is some of those people would change roles and go over to the UX side and then recontact us. But why we decided to pivot specifically and actually focus on, you know, seeking out that kind of work and seeking out UX clients in particular was because I personally felt like there was a little bit less red tape um, on the UX side of things. I felt like user research was taken a bit more seriously than market research often is. User researchers, don't get me wrong, they've got their battles to fight with their stakeholders. But one thing I always try to tell people is most companies recognize you can't market a thing if the thing doesn't work. So Mm -hmm. instead of working in the marketing side and trying to make sure the marketing worked, I simply shifted over to making sure the thing worked and that whatever the thing was being marketed about was functional. And it seemed like, you know, our recommendations were taken more seriously. Um, right off the bat, we were asked to do things like, okay, we don't want just a report. We want to give a, you want, we want you to give us a report, but we also want you to do workshops with several different teams, stakeholders, help us roadmap the next step. Whereas the market researchers, we'd give them a report, they'd go away, we'd hear from them mm-hmm. maybe in six months and say, oh, well, we didn't actually do this one thing because so-and-so didn't agree with the findings and we were never kind of consulted again. Um, I know that's not always the case. And I do have the sense that that is changing a bit now, possibly because there is a big increased focus on ROI with budget restrictions and anytime the economy does what it's doing right now. Um, but with UX, it just seemed like everybody everybody is in agreement. We need to understand this. We need to make a decision. In order to make a decision, we need to understand human beings. And I was like, these are my people. <laughs> I love that. I love that too. We're talking about this from the perspective of qualitative um, you know, I, I recently listened to your episode on data gurus, uh, and it was also on UX and I especially loved the quote I stumbled across while listening to your chat 
uh, this whole idea around heartbeats over spreadsheets. I just thought that was just meta. It was perfect. But I, I really, I loved this idea that, um, you know, human connections and having these real conversations, they're so incredibly important to the work done within the insights industry, but largely by qualitative professionals. Um, can you speak on the importance of that human connection side of, of user research? Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost hard to emphasize it enough. You know, I think that with user research in particular, what I find really powerful is that the folks who do it client side tend to have pretty scientifically based advanced degrees, right? So the new thing, if you work in UX is all of your clients have a degree in what's called HCI, human computer interactions. And you're like, wow, that sounds like I'm reading ones and zeros out of a book. Um, but in fact, they're all really, really well equipped to understand what human connection is and to kind of understand the emotional drivers behind the behavioral activity that you might actually see. Um, so I think that's, you know, something that's prevalent throughout. But then again, you also have stakeholders who really value the importance of um, the human connection. So they, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, folks are really aware of the fact that your product won't be successful if people don't love it. There's a whole concept in UX around stickiness. Um, and so your, your product isn't going to be sticky or your app isn't going to be sticky. Okay, it can be functional and it might get the job done, but why is it functional? Understanding that context is really important. Understanding the audience that you're marketing to, what their experience is actually like. Um, I think I think the UXers have it, have it nailed. <laughs> yeah, they sound like the smart ones in the room. <laughs> I, <laughs> Don't tell them that. They think, they think that already. <laughs> I think they know. <laughs> You know, I know, I know when we talk about market research, we got quantitative, we got qualitative, and obviously qualitative has its many advantages. Uh, but we're, we are looking at this from a qualitative lens. And how really does qualitative research help us emphasize insights in the case of user research? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, <clears throat> I hate to go down to this very simplistic example but i think any of us who have been working in any type of research market or user or consumer or brand or whatever it's called these days because there's a lot of different um, functions we've all <laughs> been asked by someone at some point put some verbatims in there but so why do verbatims matter why are we being asked to put verbatims in there and it's because it really underscores i mean the data tells you what but the qualitative tells you why um so it's it's impossible to understand the consequences of a potential decision that a stakeholder might be making if there's no contextual understanding so i think mm -hmm. you know when we talk about empathy i would say there is one caution which is you you can over empathize you know you can say well actually I don't know, this particular user, if they continue to use our product, then XYZ could happen. So let's just like nix the product altogether. You you kind of have to check that and balance it. And I think that keeping the idea of context in mind is, is a really good way to do that. And I think qualitative research in general, whether it's market or user research, is really great at that. It brings the context to the fore and it allows people to understand whether it's 
internal stakeholders, external stakeholders. It allows the folks who are making decisions to understand why recommendations are going the way that they are and, and kind of what exactly is being experienced by people who are interacting with the product, service, or brand. Sometimes this can lead us into uh, projects or work where we're working with hard to reach audiences, um, more niche target populations, sometimes even vulnerable societies, uh, you know, that might steer more into the market research side. And perhaps, I mean, I'm sure user research, everything within healthcare, um, there's, there's probably many industries that really focus on this as well. But how how do you take those insights that you learn within these niche populations and ensure that you're truly representative of the user's experiences? That is a hard question <laughs> um, and a great question. <clears throat> I think there is actually a lot of work being done around vulnerable populations and populations with varying different accessibility needs in UX. In fact, just before starting this interview with you, I actually saw, saw a little um, carousel on Instagram from a UX account that I follow around how to make sure you can prepare your surveys better for screen readers. And I had seen a presentation about that on the market research side from Microsoft a couple of years ago, and then it sort of faded away. I know Microsoft is still doing work on these things, but it's sort of coming back up now. And I think user research is very, they're very aware of the need to incorporate a variety of different um, perspectives. I think I think the way that we can ensure we're being representative, of course, starts with the sampling. And, you know, sampling is always a sort of um, hot button topic in qualitative mm -hmm. in general. So it's sort of like, you know, some people think you need to do 50 interviews before you can do, um, you know, draw any conclusions. Um, and in the UX uh, arena, you'll find that people will very often make decisions off the back of between four and six interviews, depending on what it is that they're exactly testing. Um, and so if you're going to be looking at a sample of, say, four interviews, ensuring that you have a really wide cross section of different user types represented in those four interviews is going to be absolutely important. Um, it doesn't always happen. But of course, I think that's the starting point in ensuring that you get sort of these voices taken into account is definitely going to be focusing on how you recruit. And then the second point is, if you are going to be recruiting from vulnerable populations or, or folks with um, varying degrees of accessibility, then you need to also consider that you may have to adjust the approach and the method. So um, where you might be able to do something in a central location, in a lab for some users, um, for other users, you may have to go to them. They might not have the means to come to you, whether it's because um, they're immobile, they're you know, they typically stay at home, or it could be because of income issues. It could be um, for a whole host of other reasons. So I think those are kind of the two ways that we need to make sure um, we're thinking about in terms of representation in, in qual. It's well said. You know, I we've been talking about the human connection as a whole, and I think that's, that's a really important statement in terms of you know, ensuring the representation of, of our users is recognizing inclusivity as well. And, you know, in order to really have that human connection, there needs to be a role for empathy um, in qualitative research, especially. And it's not to say there's not uh, empathy. If anything, we're seeing a lot more of it. It's being more mm -hmm. spoken about. It's a lot, a lot easier conversation, I think, as well. 
Um, yeah, I think down down that same conversation, you know, how how can you build a rapport with these participants so that you as a researcher, you're understanding their experiences um, to really gain that deep understanding? So have you ever seen that meme that's like, I think it's like James Corden driving a car and like Elton John in the car with the, and it, and James Corden is like in a suit and it's like quant researchers and Elton John is like in a feather bow and it's like qual researchers. We will, we will flip so, it up even. <laughs> we'll share the <laughs> But one. yes, I do. <laughs> um, so I think for a long time and perhaps even now, for a long time, this concept of qualies being the let's say divas of their <laughs> respective industries has perplexed people because they've said well how can someone with a you know so bold and dynamic and whatever um generate rapport with i don't know far-leaning right voters or you know whoever else and the thing is that i find is i i find very often that the people who get drawn to qualitative research are people who they themselves come from backgrounds where they've been marginalized um, and they have possibly even experienced harm. Um, and so as a result of that, you know, going to your actual question, which is sort of how do you kind of open up um, that rapport and, and develop that human connection? I think it's always important at the beginning of any session to find an appropriate opportunity to share something authentic about yourself. It doesn't have to be, you know, huge, like I was, I don't know, bullied when I was a kid or something, but it can be if you feel comfortable sharing that and that is appropriate for the topic that you're talking about. Um, but it could be something else, you know, so I, I don't know how many times I've done research with folks all over the United States when I was still based in the States and somebody would say, oh yeah, sorry, I'm late to the interview. I was just watching the end of the game and I was like, oh yeah, those Jets, man, they'll let you down every time. Go Patriots. And like, we don't have to even like the same team for them to understand that I am, I also enjoy NFL. They enjoy NFL. We have a little laugh and they open up to me in a way that they would not have had I just come in and said, oh, that's okay that you were late for the game. Let's begin. Um, yeah. Not late for the game, late for the interview. Um, so I think that 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 meme sort of, it took me a while to figure out why are they all, why are we all the Elton Johns? And it's, and it's because we've had life experiences that allow us to, to kind of, in, the other thing I was saying to my to my my three year old the other day is empathy. She doesn't understand. Hopefully, some of you will. Empathy is a two way street, and you kind of have to give some to get some. And so I feel you know one of the things is is yeah the the divas of the industry, the qualities who have been marginalized in some capacity, and not all, but many have, um, and for whatever reason that might be, um, are easily able to kind of right off the back give empathy without any pretext, without any request, without any demand, we're able to say, I'm willing to put myself in your shoes. And in order to allow you to put yourself in my shoes, let me share with you that the Patriots are the best football team ever to have been created. Um, and then, you know, we develop a rapport, which is funny that I'm saying this because I live in Paris now and I can't tell you the last time I watched an NFL game. Um, but it's just something that it's just, you find something, you know, that you, yes. you, can, yeah. you can share with somebody and it opens that door. 
bringing your yourself down to that that human human level that human perspective it, it's super important and it, it what i'm hearing is it goes well beyond the project work it's just it's it's being a human amongst humans like as simple as that sounds it uh it goes a long way especially when you're maybe talking about a sensitive topic that is hard for everyone to to share maybe their experience to bring yourself into an environment that doesn't maybe belong to you and and ensure mm -hmm. that uh, you're you're empathetic of your surroundings is super vital um especially yeah. I i've heard stories I've heard stories of, you know, white heterosis normative men leading focus group discussions about menstrual cramps and <laughs> knocking it out of the park. No, but just sometimes if you if you can if you can just sort of lay your cards on the table and, and sort of, you know, empathize and say, look, I 100 percent admit that I'm not going to be able to get this entirely. So help me out by demonstrating your vulnerability and in, yep. in admitting that you don't understand exactly what's being talked about, then that opens the door. So I've seen some really impressive stuff happening. And it doesn't have to be when I say people who have been marginalized, I don't mean like, you know, the only great people who are moderating are, you know, belong to a certain labeled group. Um, it's no. just people that have been not accepted or who have had to struggle for acceptance or have had to struggle to understand something at some point in their life which by the way is most of us um and and can use that to kind of help other people feel at ease and feel safe you know we've been kind of talking a lot about like the, the really heavy side the empathetic side of of market research and and what we're working on in, in user research but it might be worth kind of discussing potentially some of those, oh, I don't know, uh, Mount Rushmore fumbles of user experiences that we've we've seen in history. Um, you know, it's always fun to kind of poke a little bit of fun at, at maybe a project that didn't go uh, too well for, for some folks. I know uh, on the agency side, sometimes a, a, a negative uh, uh, story is just as good as a positive one in this regard. But I, and the reason why the one I'm thinking of is um, if anyone actually remembers uh, new Coke gate, if you will, and I'm sure this is hitting a few Gen X years and they're probably nodding. Um, but what I'm referring to is back in the 80s, uh, Coca-Cola, they decided to launch a new formula for their flagship soda, which they called New Coke. And it was, as always, an effort to appeal to a younger market. However, Coca-Cola quickly realized that they probably had made a small mistake by not conducting enough user research before releasing this new brand. Now they assumed right away the younger consumers, they would prefer the sweeter taste, you know, done, package it up, new formula. But what they did not do is consider that strong emotional connection that many of the older consumers had with the original flavor. So after a few months and, and probably a lot of spending, uh, Coca-Cola decided that they needed to bring back the original formula. And it's now, as we know today, is the Coca-Cola classic. Uh, but it was just in response to, to comp or, um, rather public demand. And the company, I think, learned real quick you know, about the importance of considering those emotional connections that consumers have with their products but you know again that that user research so why why do brands think maybe they can get away without doing ux research okay that's a that's a really good question but i think my answer is 
might be unsatisfying, which is, I think most brands are not doing that consciously. Um, (laughs) True. I think that in most cases, brands are doing some form of research or another, and they probably think that's enough. So if you are Coca-Cola and you've been doing brand tracking and your brand tracking is like, you're good, stable, slightly on the rise, all good. Then you're like, sweet, we can launch a product. Our, our, you know, people who love our product will, will be there for us. It's understanding before you launch the product that, or before you even undergo the research, that this is a different type of research or this requires different insight, right? So maybe you need to be looking at a different audience. Maybe you need to be looking at a different user kind of situation or experience. Maybe you need to be looking at something else altogether, different socioeconomic status or location or region or whatever it might be, um, rather than just sort of relying on, okay, we've got all these touch points already happening. Check, 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 check. Yep, all good. And then we make a move. Um, so that's that's my that's been my experience has been normally the brands who have these trip ups. I mean, gosh, Super Bowl ads gone wrong or I keep referencing football. It's like I'm not that crazy about football, um, but, you know, whatever, whatever it is, it's like uh, makeup ads go wrong. Sponsorships gone wrong, um, you know, whatever it might be. And then and then people are very quick to say typically, oh, well if they had done research, then this would have been avoided. And the truth is they almost all probably were doing research. They just weren't doing the right kind of research that would have enabled them to foresee that this was a bad idea. Yep. I I have a few yeah. recent examples I wish um, weren't probably too much of a sore conversation for the industry <laughs> to discuss, but it really is that. Um, it's recognizing that uh, you know, even even within the fumble, largely, uh, you know, there was really good um, investment behind research. A lot of the times there was good intention as well. So but I, mm-hmm. I love this idea about just recognizing doing doing the right research and, and sometimes as well with with the right people um, mm-hmm. is important. So. Do you have maybe, you know, Coca-Cola, I think it's a really easy ballpark example. Do you have one as well? Maybe where an organization could could have benefited from user research to avoid maybe uh, a costly mistake, like having to completely rebrand an entire flagship soda. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything more costly than that? I don't know. I don't know. I suppose having to declare bankruptcy is more expensive than that in certain ways. Oh, and I would say, I, think you it. Yep. <laughs> I would say the, the, the brand that comes to mind for me that I'm pretty sure was doing research. And I just want to kind of throw out there that user research for me can mean a lot of things. Some people sure. listening to this might think of user research as only having to do with digital touch points. Right. Let's be clear that user research and user experience was coined in the early 90s by uh, Mr. Norman working at Apple. Um, so it wasn't necessarily something that had to do with, you know, how do you use an app or a website? Um, yeah. That being said, um, those of us who lived or grew up or spent any considerable amount of time in North America saw the demise of Blockbuster um, and I would say that Blockbuster is definitely the kind of company that for sure was conducting research and they might have been conducting brand tracking research and they might have been conducting price optimization studies and they might have been conducting other types of research like where should we launch our new store. But what they were not doing 
is they weren't doing the sort of anthropologic, ethnographic style interviews or observations with their sort of user base to understand how their needs were evolving. So I think, you know, even from my perspective at the time, it seemed almost like Netflix just came out of nowhere. And, you know, remember when Netflix used still used to get DVDs in the mail? You remember that? So we'd be like, oh, wow, DVD is in the mail. Like, well, that's, that's a weird idea. And then suddenly you were like, when's the last time I've been to Blockbuster? And then suddenly you're like, when's the last time I saw a Blockbuster, you know, yeah. anywhere around? And so I think the demise wasn't as quick as our, our memories make it out to be. I think there might even still be a Blockbuster store around. I feel like I just heard this recently. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things where they surely were doing research, but they weren't doing the kind of user research that helped them understand the evolving needs of their users so that they could say, oh, wait, this Netflix thing has wheels and yeah. here's why. So here's what we're going to do about it. They just sort of said, yeah, yeah, that's cool and over there, but we've got our business model over here and we're, we're going to stick with it and we'll be fine. And they were not. Mm -mm. They did not adapt or die, so to speak. They just died. So, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I, I would argue that that is probably a lot and a big part of it. They just didn't anticipate um, their customer needs ahead, and unfortunately, Netflix beat them to the punch. Um, I, I'm a big movie buff as well, so that that whole uh, early 2000s, I was it was a touchy, it was a triggering point in my life. But um, <laughs> I also, as a user now, I couldn't imagine as much as I love my physical media, I couldn't imagine not uh, having the same kind of accessibility on the streaming side. So it's crazy how even in the last year, um, or rather, excuse me, 10 years, things have changed in terms of uh, user behaviors, uh, something in which, uh, you know, is, is kind of hard to anticipate, say, 10 years down the road, but uh, really focusing your insights and doing that, that research on the behaviors, the attitudes, the motivations, the needs, the wants, mm -hmm. all of that, that you're encompassing. Uh, I really identify opportunities and in Blockbuster's case, probably a challenge like Netflix uh, to mm -hmm. try and improve on those user design experiences. So really to round out the conversation today, Nikki, I wouldn't mind kind of touching on uh, some of those pitfalls that we experience as researchers. Uh, you know, what are maybe some of the common challenges that businesses should watch out for when conducting user research? Now, this could be you're looking at folks that have an internal research department and they're you know maybe they have more uh, tight budgets and, and tighter restraints on their timelines maybe we're talking to those folks uh, but maybe we're also talking to folks that are you know really well versed in this and and uh, you know need some more tools for the toolkit but what are what are some of those common challenges we're experiencing today yeah so <clears throat> I would say from my perspective, there's one kind of glaring macro challenge or pitfall and one micro. Um, so from the macro side, what I, what I see a lot in organizations that continue to struggle as belts are tightening and headcount is shifting is a struggle to maintain and share knowledge cross-functionally. So this is something we also know on the market research side. It's been a conversation that's gone round and round and round ever since I've started my career. But in UX in particular, um, you know, there are, there are crazy amounts of learnings that if I'm in the market insights team and I go out and evaluate a piece of comms, let's say I do focus group, I'm talking about um, a new ad campaign that's going to launch to help promote my product. 
in that focus group, there could be all kinds of findings that come up that say, well, this isn't really believable for me because I've actually used the website before and X. And the user researchers very rarely get to see this or get to hear it mm -hmm. when in fact there are little nuggets of information that they could be using for free. Um, you know, so it's you don't have to conduct a new piece of research. You don't have to run a new survey. It's I've done three focus groups and every single one they mentioned that, I don't know, the home button's not working or something like that. That's obviously oversimplified, but there's definitely a lot that can be learned in both directions from both teams. So the cross-functional thing, I think, is a macro pitfall that businesses who want to kind of get through this tougher time economically really need to wrap their heads around and kind of find a, a way to address that challenge. And then the more micro pitfall that I see a lot of um, happening in the UX space is despite how great UXers are at empathizing and at you know building rapport and really putting themselves in the shoes of their users, they are still very much tied in many cases to their product owners and their development teams and their engineers. And that can be good. But what I see happen sometimes is user researchers tend to not meet respondents or meet people where they are and bring mm -hmm. things to the table like jargon. My number one bugbear when I'm observing someone else, and this typically happens uh, client side, when I'm watching someone client side conduct their own research or if I'm watching a recording, they'll say things like, and how did you feel while completing that task? Mm -hmm. And a user doesn't think of it as a task, you know, they're, they're thinking, I just tried to buy a product, or I was just trying to find directions to my kid's school, or I was just trying to, you know, put this in my shopping cart, I was trying to check the shipping information. Um, and so, you know, for me, one of the things that I always try to do is, you know, if we are going to be doing task based um, usability research, or anything along those lines, is to do one run through, which is complete observation. <clears throat> one run through where the person actually uses their own words to describe to me what they're experiencing. And then I get to, to, you know, jump in and ask clarifying questions using the words that they have used with me. That in and of itself is also a learning for user researchers and product devs and engineers alike. If you keep calling this the, I don't know, the nav bar and everyone else mm -hmm. keeps calling it the something else, then mm -hmm. you may want to start adapting how you are referring to this thing because you should be meeting your users where they are. So that would be my sort of micro challenge that would be worth taking a look at. So how would you measure the ROI of user research? So specifically, how maybe would you work with your stakeholders or your maybe your end clients to ensure that they really understand the value? Because a lot of the times, too, they're, they're the ones dictating the budget or they have a huge hand uh, in the influence and how the money is spent in these projects. So so what are we doing uh, on the research side to ensure that that folks really understand the value without having to paint to, you know, avoid the costly mistake of not doing it, which I know <laughs> we love to do as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think one of the big things that can help underscore the ROI of user research to stakeholders is getting them involved in the results conversations and in the next step conversations. So that might be things like workshops and road mapping. And I think actually, um, you know, if we're comparing market research with user research i think user research actually does a pretty good job of this um uh -huh. that being said 
um, there's a couple of, you know, things that could be improved upon. Some stuff is really obvious. You know, if you're trying to improve conversion rate, that's a very common task, of, you know, for a user research project to accomplish. It's really kind of easy to see. Well, before this project, we were at a 67% conversion rate. We did this research. We made that change. Now we're at a 75%. Great boxes ticked. Um, but one thing that we do know, talking again about that sort of macro issue that I raised about, you know, not necessarily seeing cross-functional stuff. One thing we do know is we do not see user research teams understanding things like how does usability impact brand perception? How does usability impact willingness to pay? Um, so you might be doing a usability test and it says, yep, yep, yep. Okay. People can do these things that we want them to do. But if you're not linking it into the other areas of the business, that's a missed opportunity for increased ROI on that research. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's still something that a lot of organizations are trying to figure out how to do. Interesting. If you were new to UX researcher, no matter your background, if you wanted to do some product testing, uh, where would you suggest they start? And it could be as high level as possible. Um, but really, uh, if, if someone wanted to get in into doing a project, where, what would you suggest to them? <clears throat> I would suggest the most generic advice anyone can possibly give, which is go on the internet and search for UX. And I don't mean search for UX on Google and read all the articles. Um, but I, you got example, pretty great articles though, Nikki. So <laughs> <laughs> read those two and then call me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, for example, belong to a handful of really phenomenal Slack channels, um, oh. really phenomenal LinkedIn groups, really phenomenal um, blogs. So um, there's UXDX is an event. I follow their newsletter, I get all kinds of stuff from them. Um, several, several um, Slack channels, which I could probably name if you would like me to, um, because my Slack is open. So Hexagon UX is a great one. It is for um, women and other kind of minority communities working in UX specifically. Um, A lot of career advice happening there. There's one called Research Ops, um, because UX kind of recognizes how big of a component the operation side of things is to getting everything done. So some folks here are kind of full, you know, soup to nuts um, researchers. Some folks really specialize in ops, but it's been really, really helpful. Um, there's the UXDX Slack channel. Um, there's one I'm in a part of as well called Sustainable UX. There's also a group called Epic People. Um, Epic is not focused in UX, but they are focused um, in anthropology and ethnography. So, and that's, you know, a really big part of how uh, UXers approach their um, their work. There's LinkedIn groups. There's all kinds of groups. There's a Facebook group. There's actually two Facebook groups that I belong to. One is just jobs in UX and one is called women in UX. So, I mean, there's literally no shortage of places where you can go to ask questions about an approach you're considering. Or I, I recently did, I asked for some new, you know, I was running a type of workshop that I've run 50 times and more for my own sanity than anyone else's. I was going, ah, mm-hmm. oh, I always use the same activities. Does anyone else have anything interesting that I can do in a persona building workshop? And I got some really great responses like, oh, I've done this a couple of times. It's kind of weird, but it works. And it was amazing. So yeah, that's my really generic advice is go look for things on Slack, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, join those groups, meet those people and be there. 
I, I, I feel like, you know, that may sound generic, but you'd be surprised how few people really engage and, and maybe start by uh, poking at their fellow peer and, and picking their brain. Um, you know, uh, what I love about the industry is that everyone is so approachable. Um, we we are part of many certifications and associations where our members, like Insights Association, I think is a fantastic example where uh, just like ESOMAR, I think maybe Insights Association is a little bit more uh, representation, especially in Canada, but specifically North America, mm-hmm. where the just the community itself is so... Um, approachable and they're willing to work together and kind of, you know, discuss new things and, and, and support each other and trying to make, you know, the, the best approach possible. Because I think it really stems back to that idea that high tides raise kind of all ships. Uh, and mm-hmm. and we're, we're slowly approaching this more, I think, within the industry that uh, it doesn't have to be super dog eat dog, like we can be really supportive of each other. I, I love the idea that um, there are Slack channels available. I think Discord as well is a underutilized resource, I think. Uh, um, the older you get, maybe, but I for for some of my younger millennials out there as well, Discord is very similar uh, to Slack in in regards where you can kind of go in there and find some really great groups where people are just super approachable. Um, I know I've recently done a couple of uh, projects on the TikTok side of things with with some folks just through connecting uh, on a Slack channel. So. Uh, as generic as that may sound, I think that's really great advice, especially when you're just starting out is there, the community is available. Someone is always willing to help. Uh, I think associations, uh, you know, lots of blog articles on, on um, you know, websites like ESMR. And again, I, I even ran through a majority of yours before we had a conversation and uh, great foundational information. So I think starting starting somewhere like that is important. But I honestly, we could probably talk all day about UX uh, <laughs> research, Nikki. I honestly, I really appreciate you being on. This was a great conversation. Um, and I think it's not going anywhere anytime soon. We're adapting with the industry. Uh, we're seeing a much more uh, healthier appetite around the um, the need for it. And I'm looking forward to maybe having another conversation in the future and, uh, you know, maybe discussing more on the, the UX side, because there's lots of avenues that we could explore uh, on this topic. We really just kind of chipped at the surface today. So thanks again. Yeah, fantastic. And thanks so much for having me and for coming with really, really good questions, because a lot of the times it's just sort of like, what do you think about UX? So these are really great and fun to wrap my head around. Oh, I appreciate that so much. Well, we'll we'll chat again then. I'll, I'll come with some more hard-hitting ones. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> Sounds you. great.